clean, crystal clear water, but you add one drop of dark food coloring to it. Now, at first, that drop is going to stay concentrated at the top, but slowly spreads and clouds the whole glass. Now, a big glass may be able to absorb that drop without much difference, but further drops will eventually muddy the whole glass. What was once pure and clean becomes murky and gross. And Paul made similar claims regarding sin's presence in the church. He said that even small sin that we let linger and will spread throughout the whole group. Sin, therefore, is an infection that must be treated lest it destroy the whole body. The infection has to be removed, not simply for the sake of the one body part where it resides, but also for the sake of the whole body. And the church at Corinth had become infected with pride, as chapters 1 to 4 described. They had grown so prideful that they were overlooking heinous sin. The types that not even pagans tolerated. So we saw in chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, that a member of this congregation had married his stepmother. Sexual immorality that even pagans rejected. And so he needed to be removed from the church until he repented. The church cannot have unrepentant, underline that, unrepentant sinners among us as our members, but need to put out those who refuse to quit loving their sin, firstly, for their good, so that excommunication might jar them into repentance. And so the first half of this chapter was about that narrow focus, the individual purpose of church discipline. Most, or sorry, verse five most clearly addresses this point of negative church discipline for the individual, right? So if, if, uh, the visible church, as our confession says, is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, then the world outside is the kingdom of the devil. And verse 5 tells us to put the one who refuses to repent out of Christ's kingdom into the kingdom of the devil, the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air. The expected result being the, their destruction, but the hoped-for result being their restoration that they might be saved at the last day. And that hope of bringing a person to repentance or and restoration is the narrow goal of church discipline. But then verses 6 to 13 show church discipline's wider goal in preserving the holiness of the church, the whole church. And so this flags an important theological category for us. So as true Christians of every sort have taken the four attributes of the church, it's a fun thing to consider, right? You don't always get to hear about that. The four attributes of the church from the Nicene Creed, 
which states, and we believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. So the church is one. It has unity. It is holy. It is set apart as Christ's kingdom. It is universal. It is not tied to one nation or people, and it is apostolic. It is founded on the scriptural deposit of revelation given through the apostles. And 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 13 teaches us about the church's holiness, which tell, uh, so in that the church, church discipline, yeah, to make that clear, church discipline is one mechanism God has given to preserve that holiness, which tells us that the church's holiness is something that God takes very seriously. He has described the methods and its importance. So the main point, main point is that Christ's work and the church's holiness mean we cannot tolerate unrepentant sin among us. Christ's work and the church's holiness mean we cannot tolerate unrepentant sin among us. We're going to think about this in three points. Passover, practice, and purity. So let's reflect on Passover. So in verse 6, Paul again addressed the Corinthians' arrogance, denouncing it as not good. Verses 6 to 8 explain that point. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 6. Okay, so the beginning of verse 6 states the principle... That makes sense. The, the principle that their arrogance is bad, which Paul then explained with a, a metaphor about this unleavened dough. So, so the point here was that their pride was misplaced because they missed that the one person's sin that they tolerated actually affected the whole nation. Right? They had become prideful. They thought they were great. But they're tolerating heinous sin. It wasn't just about that individual sinfulness, which was bad enough, but was about how his sin would corrupt this whole congregation. They, they thought about the church like that glass of clear water. One drop of food coloring won't do any damage. But Paul countered. That even if it appears that the discoloration has disappeared, it's actually just tainted the whole glass. Paul's, so Paul's metaphor here about this unleavened dough came from ancient bread making, which is always exciting, right? So instead of using yeast, Israelites would take a small bit of dough from, so you make a batch and you, and you pull off a little bit and you set it aside. And then you bake the big bit. And you take the little bit from, from the last batch. <clears throat> uh, and, and after it had, so after the dough had risen, you take this little bit off and you save it to knead into the next batch. 
So when you make new dough, you take this old little bit and you stick it in there. And this bit would ferment to help make the next batch rise as if they were using yeast. The thing is, you keep recycling bits of dough for over and over and over. And eventually, this continually recycling would get contaminated, contaminated. And they need to start with a fresh mix, which is precisely what God commanded them to do in the Passover feast. Stop recycling bits of dough and start with an unleavened uh, dough ball. So in Exodus 12, we read Exodus 12, God instructed Israel to sacrifice their Passover lamb. Most people know that bit, which was a sacrifice that was a substitute for their oldest born child. And after they sacrificed this lamb, they were to eat unleavened bread, cleanse their house of leaven. So Paul's metaphor drew on general knowledge of how introducing leavened dough spread the leaven, the, the, the old bit. It would spread throughout the fresh batch. But then he continued this metaphor that it's not just about that sort of contamination. He continued in verses 7 to 8 to provide a theological rationale for from the Passover for why sin needed to be removed from the church. Because, as we read in Exodus 12, the Passover lamb, again, was the sacrifice that bought back the firstborn child of each family from having to be killed. In Exodus, in light of that sacrifice, each household then removed all leaven from their homes. And Paul compared sin with the leaven that would spread throughout all the dough. His point was that since leaven had no, since leaven had no place among God's people once they had sacrificed the Passover, sin has no place among God's people now that Christ has died for us. God commanded that Passover, that it wouldn't actually take away sin but would foreshadow, the purpose was to foreshadow Christ's work as the true Passover lamb who would entirely take away his people's sin. God's son came to earth as a man to represent the sinful human race and die the cursed death on the cross in order to absorb the curse that should have come upon all of us who break God's law. Christ took the penalty for our godlessness so that we could stand legally righteous in God's sight and be made actually, although imperfectly, righteous as well. Now, Paul said Christ, God's true lamb, had been sacrificed To buy back God's people. Because of that. Because Christ has died. We need to purify ourselves. From the leaven of sin. We celebrate the festival. Which isn't a ceremony. It's now the Christian life. 
We celebrate the festival of the Christian life by removing the leaven of malice and evil that stands for all unholiness and replace it with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, the start of all Christian virtue. So we shouldn't miss. This is, this is actually important. No, well, the, I hope the rest has been important too. This is specifically important. That there is a specific order here in what Paul explains. And we need to see this because it is so easy to turn biblical commands into ways that we think that we earn God's favor. Note, though, that we are to clear sin from our lives because. There's an important word there for because the Lamb has been sacrificed. Your redemption has been secured in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. God has procured the entire foundation of your salvation in Christ. The work of Christ then ensures, guarantees your justification. Your right standing with God as we approach His throne with Christ as our representative received by faith. But on the basis of justification, we see that in this passage, because the the sacrifice has been made, so on the basis of justification, Christ's work further enables and motivates your sanctification, growth in godliness. That's the order that Paul used here. Do not try to earn God's favor, but accept it in Christ and by the Spirit and out of gratitude, clear your life of sin. The Passover is that God founded our salvation in Christ's work To continue our salvation in actually removing sin from us. Brings us to our second point. Practice. Okay, so we saw in verse, that verses six to eight provide the theological metaphor, right, from the Passover for cleansing our lives from sin because Jesus Christ died to forgive us and cleanse us. Indeed, Ephesians 1.4 says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. God guarantees salvation apart from good works, but saves you unto good works. Now, we need to see that God does not intend this holiness secured in the death of Christ to remain at the individual level. So, we as saved people need to be holy, imperfectly holy in this life, but strive for holiness at the individual level. But, God intends holiness also to extend to our whole church communities, which underscores the attribute of the church, holiness. So, let's think about verses 9 to 11, which explain how we are to use church discipline to preserve the church's 
holiness. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, there's an interesting issue here, and we have to take it up. So Paul seems to have written a previous letter to Corinth. You see it? I wrote to you in my letter, so there's a previous letter which we don't have. So, what do we do? Yeah. Uh, here's the thing. I don't think it's... Well, yeah, the issue is, are we at a loss? Because we don't have all of Paul's letters. And I'm going to say no. One, it's not unexpected that the apostles would write regular letters to various congregations. And this could have been the only thing he said. This could have been a really short memo kind of thing. Uh, and I'm sure that there are lots of letters that are spread about from the apostles to various people that we don't have. And here's the thing. This is scripture. This book is scripture. The previous letter is not scripture. Oh, it would be exciting, although it would be illumining to have one of Paul's other letters. We are not at a loss without it because we have the entire inspired authoritative canon right here. These are the books God wants you to have as a Christian. So don't fret. That letter had addressed this same issue of sexually immoral people and had already told them not to associate with sexually immoral people, but they had either apparently misunderstood that or just not listened. And Paul's point here raises some really relevant material for our churches today. So there's this weird phenomenon where Christians think that they should limit all of their ties with people outside the church, but should also try to protect people inside the church from being found out in their sin. So, I'm thinking particularly of big churches in America that have set up these intricate internal networks so that church members always use Christian plumbers and Christian bankers and Christian dog walkers as if slapping the label Christian on those jobs changes the final product. It's kind of like, I mean, if you can get my dog down the street and back, that's the job I hired you to do, right? What's Christian about you walking this dog? On the other hand, though, those churches will cover up real scandals and their membership and leadership to prevent the world from discovering their wretchedness, which is often linked to sexual immorality. And that actually, I mean, shockingly, reverses the biblical concerns of this passage. Since the church is not about plumbing or banking or even dog walking, but about 
spirit, the spiritual society of the gospel. That is our identity. Paul outright stated his point is not that we cut ties with the worst people who are part of the world, since you would have to leave the planet to achieve that, but that we have to cut all ties with people who pretend to be Christians, call themselves a brother, verse 11, but embrace sinful practices. This is, so this is not about the Christian who struggles against sin, but about the supposed Christian who loves their sin. Not about the Christian who struggles against sin, but the supposed Christian who loves their sin. Literally, the passage tells us you are to exclude them from all churchly and personal activities. I don't think we go so far as not ever to speak to them, but we do make it sharply clear that they are not in our Christian family and have no fellowship with us. The practice is to remove those who love sin more than they love Christ. And that brings us to our final point, purity. So Paul gave us the reason for this approach of protecting the church's holiness in verses 12 and 13. For, because, because what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So Paul quoted the last uh, sentence of this from Deuteronomy 17.7, which was a command to God's Old Testament church to rid themselves of committed, committed transgressors as well. So God has always been concerned with his people's holiness and has always instituted practices to set us apart from the world. Paul indeed shows in these final verses that God is more concerned with making his people distinct than with transforming the culture into some gospel society, whatever that might mean. So some of us attended a conference a few weeks ago, right? Where multiple speakers said Christians need to be brave and address the culture about how they're wrong, about sexuality, etc., which they are wrong. That's fair enough. And I find myself a bit uneasy with that, actually, because in a room of conservatives, yeah, there's not going to be many people in a, in a big room for a reformed theological conference that are going to disagree with that premise. But in a room full of conservatives, it actually isn't all that brave to say the culture is wrong. But it would take immense courage to tell a bunch of people who bought a ticket that they are greedy, prideful, lustful, and wretched. Well, that's exactly what our passage points at. And Paul, however, seemed to have the exact opposite 
concern from those speakers. He said that God will, God will judge the world for its godlessness on the last day. Our concern as the church is for our own holiness, not the culture's. The church is meant to guard the church. In other words, our concern is those who are inside. It's too easy to lament over the world outside and ignore our own filth. It's too easy to point out all of their wretchedness and fog the mirror so that we don't see that we, I, am someone that God should hate but has given mercy. We need to quit worrying so much about the godless culture and worry about the godless church. Because we are meant to be holy. All the culture warriors, many of whom abandon the gospel and form their own sectarian denominations to form a culture around themselves, need to shut their mouths, repent, and flee to Christ. As if we could fix the culture, right? When has it ever worked? God is good, and so has given us the church as the community of the holy. Right? God gave us the church, not the culture. Be in the world, not of the world. The world is going to stay the world. This is my holy community. These people want the world. I say the world is not enough. They want the culture. I want Christ in the gospel. Which is exactly why I am concerned about this. Because I don't want any of you fixated on bringing back the culture when you simply need to be in love with the Jesus who saved you. My grandfather used to say that the best place for hypocrites is in the church so that they might finally understand one day. And if we're talking about people who aren't actually Christians, he's right. We want unbelievers here so that they can hear the gospel. But if hypocrites claim to be Christians, we need to be rid of them. Because the church is meant to be holy. Christ bought the church to give it purity. And we know this because our Passover has been sacrificed. And our lamb is Jesus Christ. So we didn't have a lamb on the Lord's table this morning because we have an eternal lamb. The Lord Jesus who died once and for all to forgive sins. And if you are not a Christian, then I hope you see that Christianity is It's not about keeping the rules, but about being rescued from our sin. It is about fleeing to the Savior who died to take the penalty for our violations of God's law. And if you would trust in Jesus Christ to be the one who earned heaven 
by his perfect righteousness and removed your curse by his sin-bearing death, then take full assurance that God makes you a citizen of heaven. And if you are a Christian, take comfort that Christ did buy your justification, your legal restoration in the heavenly courtroom by Christ's work. That is unshakable if you have faith in Jesus. But God further bought your sanctification so that good works would erupt in gratitude from a heart full full of faith that learns to hate our sin and love godliness because therein we find true freedom and fulfillment. Do not use your freedom to go back to bondage, Christians. God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. But not just so that you would be better. But so that His church would be holy. We love, we do, <laughs> we love church discipline. Because therein God protects His people from those who would lead us astray. And guides us back to our Lord and Savior who has gone to prepare a place for us to live with Him in eternity. Let's pray. Father God, we think about this and we may not think that it has immediate application. What if we're not straying into disciplinary offenses? But God, we do pray that you would give us a hunger for holiness as individuals, as a congregation, that you would help us strive for holiness, that we might be distinct from the world so that they might see the glories of Christ in people who slowly and imperfectly become more like him. So work in us by your spirit to make us like Jesus. Work in us by by your Spirit to make us like Jesus because we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who has done all things, who has passed through the veil to stand before your throne to plead our case so that we might have assurance that your love has been poured into our hearts. We do pray that we would always treasure Christ for the fact that he is the foundation of our salvation. Fill us with hope because of that and help us to live for him in this world. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.